Well, Happy New Year, everybody, and a special welcome if you're joining us for the first time. If we're your New Year's resolution, we are honored. And uh, I spent some time last week just reflecting on 2019, uh, both my own life and then just the life of our community. It was an incredible, incredible year. So thank you for all of you that were with us on the journey. Um, and just looking ahead, I couldn't be more thrilled for what we have planned for you in 2020. I'm developing some of the most exciting content I think we've ever explored together. In fact, I want to give you a sneak peek about where we're going between now and the second week of March. Uh, starting in a couple of weeks, we're going to begin a series on the Gospel of John. And uh, I don't know um, if you are aware of this, but there's four accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament of the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, John may be the most single influential document ever written in all of human history because it gets right to the heart of who Jesus was and what he came to do. Uh, John is also particularly interesting, at least to Bible nerds like me, uh, because John organizes his account of Jesus' life around seven signs, seven miracles that point to the mission and the message of Jesus. And so in this series that starts in again in a couple of weeks, we get to unpack those signs one at a time and talk about what they point to even 2,000 years later. Uh, along with the study, we're going to give you an opportunity to read John's words for yourself. And to that end, we've reserved hundreds of copies of this version of the Gospel of John. It's by an innovative company called Alabaster. Um, and what they've done is they've taken John's words and they've set it on beautiful paper, lots of room for notes around the edges, and also some just incredible pictures. It's a new way to experience John's words, whether you've never read them before or whether this is like your 700th time through. It's just a really cool opportunity to read the Gospel of John in a community as we teach through the seven signs. Uh, along with the uh, book, you'll get a bookmark uh, that has a reading plan and also some questions that we want you to be asking as you read along with us. Um, and you can purchase this alabaster copy of the Gospel of John at the next Steps Desk next week for $15, which is half off what you can get at Amazon word, because we're Dutch people, and I asked. There you go. All right. Um, and if, you, and if, if you're like $15, that's crazy. Fear not. This is, of course, the Gospel of John, which means you can read it for free online or in any Bible you may have lying around the house. You just won't look nearly as cool sitting at Starbucks. Just saying, okay? But either way, I plan to pick up a bookmark next week or the following so you can join us on that adventure. And again, the, the series is called Signs, and it begins on Sunday January 26. But for today, we get to begin a series called Under the Hood. And it's a series that for me has been in the works for a very long time uh, because of what I get to do every week. And I love my job. I spend a lot of time reading the Bible and I spend a lot of time studying church history, kind of asking questions about how did we get to this unique place and time as the church of Jesus Christ. And, and so for me, occasionally as I'm reading the Bible, as I'm reading church history, I come upon information that I think, man, this is really, really interesting interesting. And at someday, I want to share this at Keystone. The topics are kind of disjointed, so they don't really make a good series logically. But I decided that as the new year begins, someday has come. And you're about to get some of my favorite things I've learned about the church and church history and church practice. What I want to do for the next few weeks is explore three ancient church traditions with you and, and that ground us to the roots of our faith and bring richness to our times together but whose backstories are largely unknown, at least based on my conversations with a few of you. So that's why during this series, I want to take a peek under the hood of three things we do around here, baptism and worship 
and communion. Or you may also uh, have learned the word Eucharist if you grew up in a different tradition, but baptism and worship and communion. And, and so I want to show you how these traditions came to be and why they matter. And my suspicion is when you understand the why behind the what, uh, you're going to find these traditions a lot more compelling and they may even cause you to take some new steps in your faith journey, whether you're just starting out or you've been on the road for decades. And so this, this morning, we get to talk about baptism, and I know what you're thinking. You're like, hooray, right? Because everybody wakes up in the morning and goes, ooh, I hope the talk is about baptism today. I, I mean, I know that, right? But, but here's the thing. I want you to hang with me. It's way more interesting than you think. Uh, and I'll begin with an observation, and it goes like this. What you think about baptism depends on how you were raised. What you think about baptism depends on how you were raised. It, you, you, you came up in church, uh, you were part of a church tradition, they sort of handed you a, th a thought about baptism and you've just carried it with you. Because most of us, again, never ask the question, how did this whole thing get started? We just assume that whatever tradition we grew up with, that's the right one, right? I have friends that are Baptist and they're like, well, yeah, we're the right one because we have Baptist right in our name. Everyone else must be wrong. That's just how that goes, right? Uh, but whatever you think about baptism depends on how you were raised. If you were raised in church, you have an opinion about baptism. If you weren't raised in church, you had an opinion about baptism. Even if you've never opened a Bible yourself, you probably have an opinion about baptism. And in my experience, these opinions about baptism can vary greatly and can lead to some really interesting situations for people like me. Let me give you just a couple of fun examples. A few years back, I had a friend from high school reach out to me. We had, hadn't seen each other for decades, but we reconnected on Facebook. I don't know if you've ever seen this platform. It's pretty amazing. You can find people you've lost years ago, right? Well, she connected with me and then realized that I was a pastor. And then she reached out and she said, hey, I would love it if you could baptize my baby. And I said, oh, you know, I, I, I would be happy to, you know, where do you attend church? And she said, oh, yeah, I don't attend church anywhere. I haven't for decades. But, but I need the baby baptized. And I said, okay, well, we can, we can set a date and we can meet and we can talk about it. And, you know, um, does the baby's father want to be there? And she's like, well, that's kind of the weird part. I'm not entirely sure who the baby's father is. There are like two guys. I'm pretty sure it could be one of those guys. And I thought, oh, that's going to be an interesting conversation. So, um, but anyway, she reached out and, and I said, okay, you know, why do you want to get your baby baptized? And she said, well, I guess I'm kind of superstitious. And I was raised in a church tradition that said, if you want to be saved or if you want your baby saved, then they need to be baptized. And so I want my baby baptized as soon as possible. And so we got together for coffee and I shared some of what I shared with you today. And then I baptized her baby. Uh, another situation that came up, I remember the day I got a call from a friend uh, who was in the hospital. He was nearing the end of a heroic battle but a losing battle with cancer. And uh, he didn't have a ton of time left. And his wife pointed out to him that he had never really gotten around to being baptized. And she said, you know, you kept saying later, and I'm not sure how many laters you have. And so you should probably call somebody. And so my phone rang and I was here at the office and I picked up and he kind of told me what was going on. And so I dropped everything, got in my car and went down to the hospital. We had a conversation as well in which he said, you know, I, I just, I guess based on my, more what I grew up with than anything, but he says, I, I just have this sense I'm going to soon, you know, meet God face to face, whatever that's like. But in that moment, I want to make sure I've been, I've been baptized because I'm kind of afraid of what might happen if I'm not. And so I shared with him a bit of what I want to share with you today. And then I baptized him. And so to me, stories like this raise a bunch of really great questions. Here's, here's just three of them that bubble to the top for me. What exactly is baptism? 
Like, like what did Jesus have in mind with it? What is it? Uh, should we sprinkle or dunk? And when I wrote that question, I couldn't stop thinking about donuts. Is that just me? I don't know. Should we sprinkle or, I mean, is it, do you have to, you know, put somebody under the water? How does that work? And is, is baptism, this is a big one, is baptism necessary for someone to be saved? I and mean, what's that connection between achieving peace with God and, and baptism? And so today my goal uh, is to try and answer these questions and, and perhaps to take some of the mystery out of baptism. Maybe not so much the wonder out of baptism, but, but the mystery. Uh, and so to do that, first we'll explore what the New Testament says about baptism, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about the history of baptism. And then finally, this is kind of the spoiler alert, I'm going to invite a whole bunch of you who are Christians but who've never been baptized to consider getting baptized here at Keystone in 2020. And my hope is that after today's peak under the hood, you'll be more motivated to do so. So let's start by examining Jesus' final words to his disciples. So just kind of drop you into the story. Uh, Jesus has been crucified. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He's been meeting with his disciples, sort of reteaching them everything he taught them. Because um, as I pointed out before, when your teacher dies and uh, rises from the grave and he predicts his own death and resurrection and pulls it off, all of a sudden, everything he said becomes very interesting. Would you agree? So they're taking notes, and then right at the end, Jesus gives them what's become known as the Great Commission. Like, what does Jesus want his followers to do when he leaves this place and ascends into the heavens? Here's what Jesus said to them back then 2,000 years ago. He said, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So disciple just basically means follower. Jesus would say to them, you are my followers, you are my disciples, you are my students. I want you to go into the world and I want you to invite other people to, to become my followers, my disciples, my students. And when they decide to do that, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And a few of you just noticed something because you thought that the church just kind of made up the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit thing when we baptize people. No, it's right there in Jesus' instructions. He's where the tradition began. And so what happens after the close of those accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, you get to see how the early Christians live out their mission. There's a book called Acts, A-C-T-S, which describes the actions of the first disciples of Jesus. And when you read those and you read the letters of Paul, what you start to see is that anytime someone in the first century put their faith in Jesus, as recorded in the New Testament, they were baptized immediately. So Jesus says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which, which makes me wonder, what did Jesus' first disciples think of when he said, baptize? And to answer that question, I need to give you a bit of context. So baptism, or baptizo in the Greek, and, and the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language, and it was brought into English by translators many, many years later. But baptizo in Greek, it was a very common word in the first century. This is what it looks like uh, in the Greek language. Some of you who are in fraternities and sororities immediately just sat up in your seats because you get some of the Greek language. For the rest of you, I had to endure three years of biblical Greek, so occasionally you have to endure a little Greek. So that's how that goes. So uh, baptizo, and again, a common word in in the ancient world, um, and it's used to describe times something was washed or plunged or soaked or dipped. And it wasn't exclusively a religious term in the first century. In fact, if you do some of the studies, what you find is that in Greek literature, baptizo was used to describe ships that sunk in the ocean were said to have been baptizoed, uh, 
cloth, which is submerged in dye to change its color, was said to be baptizo. Um, and my favorite, there's even a recipe from 200 BC by a guy named Nysander. And I love that somehow that has survived the sands of time. Uh, and this is an ancient recipe and he describes how to make a pickle 200 years before Jesus. Here's what he says. First, you baptize the cucumber in boiling hot water to clean it. And then you baptize it in vinegar to pickleify it. I made up that word pickleify, but it, I'm sure it's in there in the original Greek. And then, of course, after this process, the pickle is ready to go on to heaven when it's eaten. Just kidding. No, I didn't really. Okay. I wasn't sure that joke was going to work. I'm really excited right now. I kind of groaned and I thought, I'm going to give it a try for a service. So, hey, second service coming to you too. Yeah. Um, all that to say, the word baptizo did not have an exclusively religious meaning in the ancient world. And, and so the question rises up, you know, why do we only think of baptism in religious terms? And the answer to that has to do with translation. Because when the English translators of the Bible reached the Greek word baptizo, so they're cruising along in one of the Gospels or in Acts, and they come upon this Greek word baptizo, they didn't always translate it wash or plunge or soak or dip, sometimes they transliterated it, which basically means you take a word from a language like Greek, baptizo, and you just pull it into English and use letters that sort of sound the same. So baptizo becomes baptize. So there are times when baptizo is translated wash or plunge or soak or dip, but there are also times where it's brought over as baptized. And you say, well, what made the difference? And here's the key. Translators always chose to use the word baptize in cases where ritual immersion in water was described. Now, ritual immersion in water was very much a part of the first century Jewish religious life. So if you said, what was it like to be a Jew in the first century? I would say, well, you would regularly go through a ceremonial immersion in something called a mikvah, and that's Hebrew. Um, but the word kind of looks like this in English, and I brought a couple pictures of mikvah so you can kind of get a sense. This is a modern-day mikvah, very stylish, by the way. Someone went to the tile shop, I'm just saying. But uh, there are two sets of stairs in a mikvah, so you would descend into the waters, and you would be ritually or ceremonially unclean. Then you would immerse yourself under water, and again, you're doing this by yourself under the water, and then you would go out the second set of stairs, at which point you would be ceremonially clean. And again, this, was, this cleansing was a regular part of Jewish religious life in the first century. Jewish women were immersed at the end of their monthly cycle and after giving birth. Uh, Jewish men were immersed after intimate relations with their partner. Uh, uh, sometimes things were immersed. Newly acquired metal and glass utensils were immersed before being used in Jewish homes. And I think most interestingly, uh, there are cases where the dead were actually immersed. At that point, they wouldn't have done it themselves, but as a part of the preparation for burial. And a few of you were like, hey, wait a minute, how does that work? Right. Uh, but perhaps most interestingly, at least for our conversation today, is that non-Jewish people, the Bible calls them Gentiles, were immersed as a part of the procedure to convert to Judaism. So if you were a non-Jewish person and you came to appreciate the God of the Jews, there was a prescribed order of things that you did in order to sort of leave behind your Gentileness and take on a Jewishness. If you were a gentleman, this meant circumcision, which meant most of these conversions were women, is how that works exactly. Right. I'm just saying, right? Yeah. And the ceremonial immersion in the cases where it was described in the Greek language, not surprisingly, the word baptizo or baptism is used. And so the ceremonial immersion symbolized leaving one system of belief and entering 
another. And once again, it's critical for us to note that this was something you did alone. You went into the water alone, you dunked yourself alone, and when you came out, you had publicly announced your change in commitments. Uh, Jewish people even described uh, a new convert as they emerged from the waters as someone who had been born again. And a few of you just had lights go off on your dashboard. Right. Now, with all that as context, I want to explain what happened around 30 A.D., Because around 30 AD, a man dressed like an Old Testament prophet showed up on the shores of the Jordan River south of the city of Jerusalem in Israel, and he began to preach. And his name was John. An early Jesus follower named Mark gives us the following description. Here's what John, he says, uh, And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching, and this is key here, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of, of sins. And just notice with me, this would have been new in the ancient world because in the ancient world, the Jewish people were taught in order to deal with their sins, they would go to the temple in Jerusalem. And John seems to suggest here that you would have a baptism of repentance after you decided to leave your sin behind. Uh, that's one of the ways that forgiveness could be found. And it was scandalous, but John tells us it was a popular, or Mark tells us it was a popular message. Let's look at the next slide. He says, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. So everyone's going out to see John. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And so John, of course, became known as John the Baptist or John the Washer or John the Immerser. And a few of you just went, oh, I thought he actually was a Baptist, as if to distinguish him from John the Presbyterian and John the Episcopalian. No, he was the one who did the baptizing. And so just imagine this with me. You come down from Jerusalem and you hear John begin to teach and he's proclaiming that God was about to do something brand new in the world, something that had never been done before. And he warns you that if you don't turn away from your sin and get right with God, you might miss it. So you need to turn away from your sin. You need to surrender your life to God. And then after preaching, John would go down into the Jordan River and issue an invitation. He would basically say to people, if you're ready to repent, come down into the water with me and I will baptize you. And the people lined up and John ceremonially washed them. He baptized them one by one. And they would have known that the primary purpose of the washing wasn't dirt removal. His ceremonial washing was associated with his message. Just like a Gentile would go into a mikvah and sort of wash off their Gentileness and then come out and adapt a more Jewish way of life, John was inviting people into a new way of life through his ceremonial washing. Now, what's really interesting is John's actions were unprecedented in the ancient world because nobody had ever really ceremonially washed another person. In Jewish culture, you always did that to yourself as a way to symbolize, again, you were dying to your non-Jewishness and coming alive to Jewishness. But now people were being baptized by John in order to associate publicly with the message of John. They were basically saying, I believe what John is saying is true and I'm going to go public with my belief. And notice with me, like it didn't seem like it was enough to just stand on the side of the Jordan and moo. You know what I'm talking about? You moose in church sometimes. We all do this, right? You're like, mmm, right? Yeah, somebody's really, you know, the guy on stage or girl on stage, they're talking and they're hitting it real hard. And you're like, mmm, that's really good. That's not how this would go. John wanted people watching from the banks to know who agreed with his message. And so after preaching, he would say, come in with me if you want to be a part of the new thing that I'm doing and the new thing God is doing. I want the people in your village to know that you're agreeing with what I say. 
So that, that's about 30 AD, and you fast forward a little bit, and one day, the story of John the Baptist takes a really unexpected turn, because as John is baptizing people in the River Jordan, he looks up on the bank, and he points, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Look, the Lamb of God. Literally, God has sent a Lamb who takes away the sins of of the world. And the people in the water with John were confused because they looked up and saw a man standing there. But he was a man unlike any other man. And as the story unfolds, we, we find that this man would change the world. He would usher in a new covenant, a new relationship between people and God, a, a new testament that, that wasn't dependent on human faithfulness, but was dependent on God's faithfulness alone. But on that day, on the banks of the Jordan River, Jesus looked like every other Man And he, like everyone else, stepped into the water of the Jordan to be baptized by John. And John knows who he is. And so John objects. John says, listen, I need to be baptized by you. Because John knows that he has sin on his life and Jesus doesn't. But then Jesus says to John, he says, let it be so now. In other words, I want you to baptize me, John. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. John agreed to baptize Jesus. And Jesus knew something powerful. Jesus knew that when John baptized him, he was publicly affirming John's message. So John the Baptist washes the man he knows to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, fast forward again, and something even more surprising begins to happen Jesus' disciples begin to baptize people. And here's how it happened. Uh, someone would come to listen to them and, and they would talk about Jesus, his mission, his message, who he was. And just like in the case of John, uh, people would respond in faith. And when they would respond, Jesus' disciples began to baptize them. When people came to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the one sent by God to rescue us from sin, they would line up and publicly be baptized as a way for everyone to know they had come to believe in the message of Jesus. And just like in the case of John, baptism was a public declaration of a new association. And friends, that's how Christian baptism began. John the Baptist was the first, and Jesus' disciples adopted the tradition as people came to believe in him because that's what Jesus told them to do. And that's how the whole thing got started. Jesus would say to his first followers, listen, they need to know it's not enough that they just make a decision on the inside. I really want others to see evidence of their decision on the outside. It's better for them and it's better for their community. And so to kind of sum all of that up, um, I just want to give you three observations before we close and then uh, an invitation. Number one goes like this. A baptism is a public declaration of a new Association. So what is baptism? It's a public declaration of a new association. Does it matter if we dunk or sprinkle? I don't think particularly, right? I think what's important here is that it's a public declaration of a new association. Baptism is when we go public with our faith in Jesus and everyone can see that we're associating with the mission and message of Jesus. We have a chance to say that I affirm everything Jesus is about. I'm with him and he's with me. 
So that's number one. Baptism is a public declaration of a new association. Number two, uh, baptism is a personal declaration of a new association. In other words, um, when you read the New Testament text, what you see is it's not just public. It really should be personal. In the New Testament, people who were baptized were people who had decided on their own to be baptized. Uh, which brings me to a brief aside about uh, infant baptism. And as many of you know, um, Keystone draws people from many different faith traditions. And that's one of the things that we love about this place. People from all sorts of different backgrounds come together in community here at Keystone. And a lot of these traditions have been baptizing infants for generations. The Christian Reformed Church, uh, whose world headquarters is right here in Grand Rapids. The Reformed Church of America. The Presbyterian Church. The Catholic Church. Again, for hundreds of years in some cases, have been baptizing infants. And, and so we want to honor that heritage as a congregation. And, and if you desire, that's why we're more than happy to baptize your baby here at Keystone. At, at the same time, we encourage all Keystone friends to go public with their faith in Jesus when they reach an age in which they can make the decision on their own. That moment, like you saw in the video in the first half of our Anthem students, that moment becomes a milestone for people on the journey of their faith. And what's interesting is, is often the most powerful part of the baptism isn't the dunking part or the sprinkling part. The most important part is the story part. It's when someone says, this is my story. This is how I came into the world. This is what my family was like. A lot of times this is how I wandered and now I'm back and now I believe and now I want everyone to know that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And I'm telling you, every time we hear those stories, our community becomes stronger. There is no teaching that I can do that is as compelling as the work God is doing in your life. And so to tell those stories is such an incredibly powerful thing in the life of our community. So again, baptism is, is a personal declaration of a new association. Um, and, and then fine, excuse me, finally, number three uh, goes like this. Uh, baptism is not a condition of salvation. It is evidence of salvation. And, and this one is like, this one is where people get confused all the time. Baptism is not a condition of salvation. It is evidence of salvation. Said differently, you don't need to be baptized in order to find peace with God. But if you think about this and you know the story of Jesus' life, you already know this is true. Uh, because Jesus is crucified with a guy on his right and a guy on his left, right? And, and, and so while he's hanging on the cross, uh, one of the guys comes to believe in Jesus and Jesus extends grace to this guy. He recognizes Jesus for who he is and Jesus literally says to him, listen, today you're gonna be with me in paradise. Where I'm going, you're going. And this is a little bit obvious, but kind of relevant, right? That dude was hanging on a cross. He did not have a chance to be baptized. And this didn't seem to bother Jesus at all. See, that's why I think baptism is, is not a mystical, supernatural thing. It's not a if you don't, he won't thing. In the New Testament, it's about going public with a decision you made privately. So, so here's the bottom line for today. I mean, I would just love to invite you, if you're here and you've crossed the line of faith and you've never been baptized, you really should get baptized. Uh, you, you need to go public with your faith in Jesus. It's something Jesus asked you to do. It's good for you and it's good for us. Because again, we all grow in our faith when we hear other people's stories of faith. And so as far as the next step, it's really kind of it's really kind of fun. If any of this has resonated with you, one of our lovely staff people would love to buy you a cup of coffee, right? We'd love to hear your story. 
And we'd love to talk you through kind of what baptism looks like here at Keystone. There's an opportunity even in a couple weeks if you want to jump on it. Uh, but we have a tub at the ready at any time. You just let me know, right? Uh, you just need to email uh, nextsteps at keystonecc.org. And this does not obligate you to get baptized. Just if you have a question, we'd love to talk to you. I mean, just signing up. We're not going to, we don't call you forever and ever and ever. And, and we just love to get you a cup of coffee. And so friends, that is the backstory of baptism, and that is your first peek under the hood. <laughs> Would you stand, and I'll close us in prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, um, it feels right once again this morning just to say thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you sent him to rescue us from a situation that was impossible, and yet through him, you made a way where there was no way. We thank you for the gift of baptism as well. We thank you for the chance to stand in front of community and as individuals proclaim our faith in your son, to associate with him and everything he said. We thank you for grace because none of us is ever worthy of salvation and that's precisely the point. We thank you that you meet us where you are, but you don't, you don't leave us where we are. You invite us forward. So I pray for anyone in this place who has maybe a new stirring at the start of a new year, that maybe, maybe it's time to go public. I pray that you would give them courage to tell their story in a way that we can all be blessed. And so we thank you. We honor you. We praise you. We love you. And we desire to love you more. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week for part two of Under the Hood. <laughs>